this is Tales of the Old Burying Ground. Stories inspired by the Dartmouth College Cemetery. This is a story about a downfall of a politician, one about avarice and corruption and the ruthlessness of the mercurial American populace. It's also the story of a fiercely intelligent Dartmouth graduate with a passion for public service, the victim of a gross misunderstanding who lost everything as a result. But most of all, it's the story of a messy scandal, one of the first political scandals in our country's history and of the inner machinations of government and its members. Over time, Dartmouth College has produced a litany of notable individuals in the political sphere. One such figure was James W. Patterson. Now buried in the Dartmouth College Cemetery, Patterson was born in Henniker, New Hampshire in 1823. After graduating from Henniker Academy, he began a career as a lifelong educator teaching at the local school. He then enrolled at Dartmouth, graduating in 1848 with high honors. Patterson went on to teach at a theological seminary before being called back to his alma mater as a tutor. Shortly thereafter, he took up the position of professor of mathematics and subsequently the chair of the astronomy and meteorology departments. In 1858, Patterson left Dartmouth to sow the seeds of a political career. He served as a school commissioner for Grafton County and then as a secretary of the State Board of Education. This position required Patterson to address large swaths of people in discussing county educational affairs. In these speeches, he began to display his eloquence and wit, and the citizens of New Hampshire soon after sent him to the state legislature as a representative for the 3rd District of the state in 1963. There, he quickly made his intelligence and commanding oratory skills known, leading to his appointment as a chairman of the Committee on National Resolutions. His acceptance speech for the role was described by the then-Attorney General Mason W. Tappan as the most eloquent and thrilling speech he ever heard. Immediately after the House of Representatives, Patterson was elected to the Senate in 1967. He was a model politician, a stalwart on free education, and a staunch abolitionist lauded as one of the nation's best speakers and most level-headed politicians, a proud Dartmouth alum. But like many political careers, his took a turn. On the eve of the 1972 election, the New York Sun, acting on an anonymous tip from an involved party, broke a story that several U.S. congressmen were taking bribes to approve federal subsidies for a national railroad company. In 1867, Massachusetts Representative Oakes Ames, an ardent advocate for the railroad industry, approached several of his fellow congressmen with a lucrative deal. His family's firm, Oliver Ames & Sons, was playing a part in the creation of the Union Pacific Railroad. It was a government-sponsored project through which the company and an affiliated contracting firm, the Credit Mobier Company of America, would build the Union Pacific Railroad. Ames wanted to share a slice of the profits with his colleagues. Under the table, he'd give them bribes of discounted stocks in exchange for some votes in favor of surplus subsidies and loans for the project. In addition, the congressman would ignore the corrupt nature of the UPRC and Credit Mobier's operation. The UPRC and the Credit Mobier Company were actually one and the same, the latter a shell of a firm owned by the directors of the UPRC. Credit Mobier charged UPRC exorbitant amounts at the government's expense, while Ames' friends in Congress looked the other way, having been bribed with cash and shares of stock. It was one of Ames' disgruntled employees that tipped off the sun, and it all came crashing down. A congressional committee was appointed to investigate the allegations, and sure enough, testimonies revealed that Patterson and several other prominent congressmen were implicated in the scandal. A few were acquitted and walked away unscathed. Many others, Patterson included, were ridiculed, found guilty, and lost their positions. Patterson, who claimed that he gave Ames money to invest without knowing it was propping up a criminal enterprise, was found to have given false testimony and shown the door. 
Although Patterson's term ended a mere month after the scandal, so he wasn't technically dismissed from his role as senator, the hostile goodbye was less a tear-filled end to a brilliant career than a hearty kick in the ass as he walked out. Though he was on his way out anyway, Patterson fought tooth and nail to clear his name, calling for subsequent investigatory committees and arguing adamantly against the primary investigators. In an over 100-page response to the affair, Patterson addressed the unfairness of what he saw as a shabby attempt at a witch hunt. A report has been presented which, he wrote, at the close of a long accusatory statement of alleged facts and of reasoning thereon, submits a resolution for my expulsion from the Senate, when it was plainly impossible to have a matter discussed, to hear my defense, and to allow me to endeavor to relieve my character from the stigma so unjustly, in my judgment, affixed to it by the opinion of certain of my fellow senators. And yeah, it's not exactly clear why the prosecutors found Patterson unequivocally guilty. It was a trial retrospectively viewed as notoriously disjointed, unorganized, and less than thorough. But it resulted in a harsh ruling for Patterson by not only the official inquiry committees, but more generally by his peers and the American people as well. They held him in contempt for years to come. Not only does Patterson's relentless advocacy for his defense on and off the record seem at least somewhat genuine, but the evidence against him seems at very best scant. One letter from 1873 from Patterson's broker, producer of the investigation, stated, I enclose a list of all stocks or bonds bought or sold for you. We have never bought or sold a share of Credit Mobier for you. It appears that Patterson never owned any shares of the company, and most of the evidence against him came from people like Ames, who seemed to have been overly willing to give up others for his own sake. And Patterson honestly seems to have genuinely and correctly pointed out a degree of injustice in the process. In the aforementioned response to the Senate decision, he writes, Nothing remains for me except either to leave the capital in silence under the painful sense of the deep injury which has thus been done to me, or to throw myself on the indulgence of the Senate in the present manner, for the purpose of indignantly asserting, at least, my innocence of the wrongful acts charged by this report, and of entering a solemn protest against the sentence of condemnation, with which it concludes, as being supremely unjust in itself and wholly unsupported by the evidence on which it professes to be founded. Whether actually guilty or not of the alleged crimes, Patterson was the victim of scapegoating, tyranny of the majority, and the ruthlessly efficient bureaucracy of the U.S. government. The Senate, the public, and even most subsequent historians held Patterson as unquestionably guilty in the affair. As historian Gordon McKinney described it, Patterson's world came crashing down on him in the winter of 1873. Regardless of the confusion over his involvement, Patterson emerged from the scandal marked as a dishonest scoundrel with a stained reputation and the public memory of his brilliance and acumen all but completely erased. One New Hampshire newspaper, the New Hampshire Sentinel, published a response to the incident leveling Patterson for his ostensible crimes. Quote, We in New Hampshire were completely overcome with shame and humiliation. So utterly was that confidence, the growth of ten long years overthrown in an hour, that this man, whom we had so delighted to honor, whose eloquence had lifted us to nobler aims and higher purposes, should so forget his high station as a senator, to prevaricate, falsify, and finally to perjure himself, was appalling. Sure enough, in an 1883 letter to Ames, Patterson recounted verbal and written attacks he had received as a result of the scandal, which he said had, quote, ruined the happiness of his family for the past few years. Yet still, after enduring the scorn, a man with no chance of changing the cultural narrative, viewed as categorically guilty in the eyes of the American people, Patterson, in an off-the-record letter written to a colleague, still denied his culpability. Patterson's strong will and persistent denial of his guilt mixed with his intellectual gifts granted him a steady comeback. The decision to expel him from the Senate stemmed from a confused and ambiguous trial, and what seemed like the end of his reputation in life wasn't as damning in the long run as initially thought. 
Despite the scandal, he never lost favor with the Dartmouth community, and he returned to his alma mater to give speeches two different times in the 1870s, right after the incident. Shortly before his death in 1893, he once again joined the community as a beloved faculty member, as the Willard Professor of Oratory and Rhetoric, serving in the position for less than a year before dying in his home at the age of 69. While this seems like a heartwarming ending to a tragic story, there's little information in the college's records as to why Patterson's involvement in the scandal and his subsequent degradation was ignored on campus. Despite national coverage and almost complete public consensus on his guilt, the college pretty much immediately invited him back as an honored speaker. Was the school ignoring his involvement or promoting his innocence for PR? It's worth asking. The whole affair remains a mystery to me. His trial, the ostensibly unfair devolution of his life, his seamless transition back into the school's good graces despite it all, one can only wonder. Tales of the Old Burying Ground is funded by the Dartmouth College 250th Celebration. Executive produced by Ilana Grellard and Colleen Goodhue. With original music by Bill Gezi. 